The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
a start and just say that uh, welcome to you all. This is the June 23rd, 1922 electronic meeting of the Environmental Commission of Ann Arbor. This meeting is in accordance with the executive orders of the governor to affect social distancing and mitigate the spread of COVID-19 virus. We intend to conduct this meeting similarly to an in-person meeting. However, we're asking you to be patient if there are technical issues as we just resolved some. Uh, public comment will be by telephone only. To speak during any of the uh, public comment opportunities, please call, I'm gonna read a different number here, 877-853-5246. Um, and enter meeting ID 915, uh, I think that's 8343-9476. Uh, and let's see. This information is available on the published agenda and the public notices section of the city website and on the broadcast of this meeting on the CTN channel 16, AT&T AT channel 99 and online on www.a2gov.org slash watch CTN. Um, and that is the, the kickoff to our, our meeting. Uh, and with that, I'd like to call us to order and ask Galen to read the land heritage statement. All righty, land heritage statement. I acknowledge that the land the city of Ann Arbor occupies is the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, including Odawa, Ojibwe, and Bodewadne, and Wyandotte peoples. I further acknowledge that our city stands like almost all property in the United States on lands obtained generally in unconscionable ways from indigenous peoples. The taking of this land was formalized by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807. Knowing where we live, work, study, and recreate does not change the past, but a thorough understanding of the ongoing consequences of this past can empower us in our work to create a future that supports human flourishing and justice for all individuals, and that is the Land Heritage Statement. Thank you, Galen. Um, and now I'd like to ask you to call the roll, please. Yeah. All right. Uh, Commissioner Needham. Commissioner Needham. Councilmember Dish. Present from Evanston, Illinois. All right. Uh, Commissioner Graham. Commissioner Graham, Councilmember Griswold. Present from Ann Arbor. Right, Commissioner Collie Ward. Here. All right, Chairperson Brown, Stephen Brown. All right, Vice Chairperson uh, Rita Mitchell. Here in Ann Arbor. Uh, Commissioner Vandenbroek. Make sure the one's in the queue. Wait a minute. Um, yep, no one's in the queue. All righty. Uh, Commissioner, I believe Morio. that he won't be here. You want me to uh, leave him as absent or present? Absent, please. Okay. Um, Commissioner Oriel. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Gib Randall. 
Commissioner Gib Randall, Commissioner Marson, Commissioner Marson. Here in Ann Arbor. Right. Commissioner Gruber. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner uh, Needridge. Commissioner Needridge. All right, we have a quorum. We do, are you sure? One, okay. two, three, four. My name wasn't called, but I'm seven, here in Ann Arbor. Oh. Eight. Who was that? I'm. Oh, Juno. <sighs> so sorry. You gotta check that. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. She used to be on the uh, Ledger Star. Now, uh, Commissioner Juno. Here in Ann Arbor. All right, we have a quorum. That feels better. Good. Um, great. So I would like to ask for approval of the agenda. From Commissioner Councilmember Griswold, seconded by Councilmember Commissioner Kellowert. Thank you. And next, um, I'd like approval of the minutes from our May meeting. Any comments on the minutes and concerns? Not, may I consider them approved? I'm hearing nothing, I'm gonna say yes. Okay, <laughs> Griswold, seconded by Gruber, thank you. Sorry for using just your last names. Um, our next item of um, business is public commentary. And uh, Galen, would you please check to see if there are anyone callers to make comments? There's no one there for public comment. Okay. I'm gonna just, because I think there, there was a problem for me reading this and I'm just gonna say the number again, it's 877. 853-5247. The meeting ID is 915-8343-9176. It was hard for me to read that first time. So just for be sure. And okay, with that, um, I would like us to move on to our um, first presentation. And I, I really appreciate um, Professor Dick um, Norton for, um, oh, I'm sorry, wrong. I got it in wrong order. We're starting with the Municipal Utility, uh, Electric Utility presentation by Greg Widring, who's president for Ann Arbor for Public Power. Um, we were to have this presentation at our last meeting in May and it was, um, we ran out of time. So um, Mr. Woodring was kind enough to uh, join us again tonight. And um, I wanted to say that, that I am an active um, advocate for this particular program. I just want that out there in the open for us all. Um, and I work as a volunteer for it myself. Um, and I see it as um, it's being included in this discussion because we had a presentation on the city's um, proposal for a sustainable energy utility that is uh, potentially a complement for this kind of program. And so I thought it was worthwhile for the um, Commission to hear about the Ann Arbor for Public Power presentation and, and its options. And it is also involved with a feasibility study along with the SCU. So with that, um, I'll stop talking and ask Mr. Wedring to proceed with his presentation. Thank you so much, Rita. 
Um, I appreciate the great introduction. My name is Greg Woodring. I'm president of Ann Arbor for Public Power. And uh, we have a presentation here for you tonight. Um, I'm probably going to move through some of it a little bit quicker because I expect you all to be a little bit more up to date on some of these things based off of the previous. Um, oh, that didn't work. Uh, slideshow. Uh, based off the previous presentation that you got, um, as well as just your general awareness for being uh, commissioners. But if I slide over anything that you are more interested in hearing about, feel free to just ask me to go into more detail. I'm very open to that. But uh, without further ado, um, we are Ann Arbor for Public Power. So who is Ann Arbor for Public Power? What is Ann Arbor for Public Power? Well, we're a coalition of members from various local organizations. Uh, we have representation from DSA, Sunrise, Indivisible, Climate Action Movement, Washington 350, Ann Arbor Beyond Bernie, GEO, Fridays for Futures. We recently got an endorsement from Our Revolution Michigan, which was very uh, much appreciated. So we managed to build a decent coalition of people doing uh, work in and around Ann Arbor. Uh, and Fundamentally, what we believe in is a green and publicly owned future. We want to democratize, decommodify, decarbonize, and decolonize our energy sources. And so what is it the problem that we're facing, right? The problem in Ann Arbor uh, is that DTE is not transitioning to renewable energy fast enough to meet our global or local emissions targets, right? DTE is actually the third dirtiest major utility in the country. Uh, this uh, is their most recent fuel mix that they published um, for last year. They burned about 58% coal. That's up 8% from the year prior, about 10% fracked gas. Um, they got about 23% of their power from nuclear and about 9.5 from renewables. And that renewables, in fact, is a little bit misleading because some of that renewable energy, actually a decent point portion of that renewable energy is actually burned garbage, which I don't think many of us would uh, consider exactly uh, eco-friendly. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of illustrate that point, right, Ann Arbor has set an ambitious, but I believe reachable carbon neutrality date of 2030. President Joe Biden's also set a carbon-free electricity date of 2035. However, DTE's target date is 2050. Uh, about 20 years past what the IPCC tells us is uh, the minimum to reach in order to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of the climate crisis. And DTE doesn't really even have a real plan to reach that 2050 timeline. Uh, they plan to continue to operate um, 12 coal-fired generators until 2040, which is 10 years past when we need to get off of coal. Uh, and they're also continuing to invest in fracked gas infrastructure. In fact, they seem to believe that they are going to be able to make fracked gas carbon neutral, which is pretty unrealistic according to a lot of the science on this topic, which probably don't need to go into a ton of detail with all of you, but generally we consider this technological wishful thinking. They believe that there is going to be some sort of magical technology in the future that is able to uh, make uh, fracked gas carbon neutral, which is definitely yet to be seen. And so what do we think is the solution to this problem? And what is the reason for our existence and why we're here talking today is we believe that through municipalization, we'll be able to achieve our city's uh, energy goals. So what is municipalization? Essentially, municipalization is just the process of taking something that is privately owned and putting it under the ownership of a city. 
right? So there's plenty of other municipal owned utilities in the country. In fact, our water and sewer comes from a municipal utility. Most water and sewer comes from a municipal utility. And there's actually a lot of communities across the United States, over 2000, that gets their uh, energy from a municipal electric utility. And over 40 of those are in Michigan alone. And there's not really a big uh, wonder as to why that is. It's explicitly protected by the state constitution to allow cities to municipalize their energy grid. You can see here a map of uh, the different municipal utilities across the country or across the state. Some of the big ones, Lansing, Holland, Chelsea, Traverse City, um, Holland. Uh, they, and why is it that we believe that a municipal utility is going to be right for Ann Arbor? What is it about a municipal utility that uh, outcompetes this IOU model, this investor-owned utility model, right? Well, there's five main areas that we identify. Reliability, affordable, affordability, local control, the fact that it invests in our community. And finally, and I think probably most important to most of the people here listening today, is the environmentally responsible choice. So reliability. On average, a public power utility loses power about half as often as their IOU counterparts nationwide, right? The average uh, outage for a public power utility per year uh, is about 74 minutes. Um, and the average outage for an IOU, uh, uh, an investor-owned utility nationwide is about 136 minutes. But, that doesn't exactly tell the whole story in Michigan. In fact, in Michigan, it's considerably worse. DTE uh, in 2017, where we pulled these numbers, and I guarantee you that if you looked at some of the more recent numbers, they'd probably be worse. Um, DTE lost about uh, a little over a thousand minutes back in 2017. City of Lansing, by comparison, the city's uh, largest municipal utility lost just a little bit over 250. That's about a four times less outage, right? Which means their power went out less often and it came back up quicker. Affordability. It is also cheaper. Uh, so you get better service for a cheaper rate. On average, nationwide, a municipal utility tends to pay about 14% less than their IOU counterparts. And once again, that is not quite the uh, same extent in Michigan. Uh, Ann Arbor under DTE, and it's actually gone up since uh, these numbers were pulled. Um, but when these numbers were pulled, we're about 17.51 cents per kilowatt hour. It's about 18-ish now. Um, Chelsea, our next door neighbor by comparison, spent about 10.15 cents per kilowatt hour. That is a 40% less that they are paying for their energy. And really the reason is because they're a municipal and utility, right? In fact, Chelsea, uh, doesn't buy different power than we do, right? They write a check to DTE every year to buy their power, but they're able to collectively bargain on it, right? And they're able to uh, buy energy at a considerably cheaper rate because of the uh, advantageous position that they're put into uh, by buying this in bulk as a city. Now, we don't just believe we should do this because it's cheaper, better power though. Many might be able to argue that that's enough of a reason, but we have more to it than that. A municipal energy utility will give us local control, right? With a municipal energy utility, we have pretty much control over everything that we do with our power. We would control our rates. We would control where our power comes from. And we would control when our infrastructure is updated, right? A recent uh, state um, study showed that 
DTE's infrastructure, a large portion of it was about 40 years past its functional end of life, which means that it should have been replaced back in the 80s, and yet it's still in operation here today, right? That is a large contributing factor to these reliability concerns that we have, and it's simply a decision that we wouldn't need to make if we owned it ourselves. Also, it invests in our community, right? And I can get into the details of uh, pilot versus taxes and how uh, municipal utilities actually contribute quite a bit money, more money back to their community uh, through um, what's called a city fee than uh, investor-owned utilities typically pay back in taxes. But it also means that we're going to be investing in good jobs in our local community, right? Jobs that would be protected by our responsible contracting policies, right? That we'd be able to build in union protections to. It would allow us to build a modern and reliable uh, infrastructure, right? And a modern, reliable energy grid. We know that the future of energy is not these large investor-owned coal-fired power plants or large centralized power plants, right? The future of energy is the distributed network of reliable infrastructure that is able to stand up to the ravages of climate change, right? These storms and outage, uh, things that cause these outages are only going to get worse, and we need to become more resilient if we want to overcome that, right? And finally, and what I think is probably the most convincing to personally us and likely many of you, it's the environmentally responsible choice. In short, it allows us to reach our climate goals on our own terms. We're, we do not need to rely on what DTE decides is profitable for them to invest in. We are able to seek out our own reliable, our renewable power and buy that power instead, right? There's two basic ways that we would be able to get power with a municipal energy utility, right? We'd be able to obviously use as much power as we generate as much power as we possibly can within the city, right? We can invest in rooftop solar. We can provide uh, programs that will help incentivize rooftop solar and make it affordable to people, right? Things like on-bill financing. Many of these same uh, policies that the SEU is uh, looking to implement, the uh, Muni would also be able to implement them. And it would have the advantage of being able to do it at a larger scale because it would be the entire city that would be uh, involved in this rather than subscribers. Um, and it would also allow us to get over many of these restrictions that DT has uh, put on us, right? DTE currently puts a 1% cap on local distributed energy generation. That is at the discretion of your utility, right? If we had our own municipal owned utility, we'd be able to eliminate that cap. Also, DTE, since we made this slide, has started lobbying to try to put a tariff on every homeowner with rooftop solar. Estimates are that uh, homeowners with rooftop solar are going to be paying about $100 extra per month in their energy bills just for having rooftop solar. We wouldn't need to do that, right? That would be a, that is at the discretion of the utility, and that's something that we'd be able to overcome with our own municipal energy utility. And also, just to prove the point, there are exactly six utilities in America at the moment that have a 100% renewable fuel mix. All of them are publicly owned utilities, either cooperatives or municipal utilities. And so, let's talk about funding. Uh, this is obviously one of the um, big issues, right? How much is this going to cost? Is it going to lead to increased taxes? Is it going to bankrupt the city? And there's serious questions to ask. However, thankfully, I think we have a good answer for you on that one. So typically, the way that you fund uh, municipalization is that you do it through a revenue bond, right? So the city, which they're currently working on at the moment, will fund a feasibility study, and that will evaluate exactly 
you know, at least within the ballpark, how much is it going to cost to buy out this infrastructure, right? Then it's going to estimate how much money is it going to take to run this utility and how much money will we get back in the rates, right? DTE is already charging us quite a bit in rates. Instead of that money going to DTE, that money would then be going to the city. Uh, and there's going to be almost certainly money left over. And pretty much every single city that has undergone this uh, procedure, there is considerable money left over. And that pays for the service on the debt for the bonds, right? So you, the muni pays for itself. And in fact, in most communities, there's actually even more than that. And that's money that's able to go back to the city and be reinvested in any programs that the city wants, right? It can go towards more sustainability or parks or water. Well, I don't know if it can go to water, but that, it can go to a lot of whatever the city wants. Um, so yeah, it doesn't raise taxes, provides additional funding. In short, it's the cheapest way that we possibly could reach our climate goals because it's going to make us money. Um, and you know, here's a graph that kind of illustrates how that works out for other communities across the state, right? All of these communities are of very different sizes, but I can assure you that this is a decent amount of money for each of them. Traverse City, uh, back in 2020, where I pulled these numbers from their financial statements, made $1.6 million. Holland made $7.6 million. And Lansing made a whopping $23.1 million money written back to the city. Um, so now I've got a bit of a thing on the legal history. I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker because I think that many of you are up to date, but essentially this outlines uh, the details of the Foot Act, right? So back when electricity was new and people were trying to electrify, it, some cities went down the path of creating their own municipal utilities. Most of the municipal uh, energy utilities you see in Michigan nowadays come from this era where they stood it up themselves and built out their own infrastructure many communities couldn't afford to do that, right? And they relied on private funding to be able to do it. And if someone's going to provide private funding, they're going to expect a return on their investment. And that makes a certain amount of sense. So they, the cities would agree to what's called a franchise agreement. And they would say for a set amount of time, five, 10, 20, 30 years, we will only buy power from you. However, in 1905, there was an effort to standardize how these contracts were being done, right? Every city had their own contract and it was a bit of the wild west. And the state wanted to say that there is a standard way to enter into these contracts and they rewrote all of them. Now, Foote was the last name of a man who sat on the board of a company called Consumers Energy. And it just so happened that there was a clause within that Foot Act that when they rewrote all these franchise agreements, they happened to leave out the expiration date on all of these agreements. So now we pretty much every city in uh, Michigan, not all of them, but most of them uh, had these co contracts back in 1905 and they became foot act franchises that were indefinite. Um, and they provided an indefinite uh, franchise agreement to that uh, utility forever. Um, in 1907, people got really mad about this. They passed a um, amendment to the state constitution saying that no franchise agreement can last more than 30 years. The Supreme Court then uh, heard a case brought to them challenging this amendment. The Supreme Court of Michigan found that, yes, this amendment will apply to all future franchise agreements, but it doesn't apply to previous ones, which is a bit frustrating because they kind of just rewrote all the contracts and they said, well, you can't modify a contract, but 
over the next uh, hundred some years, this was held up time and time again, and it's become rather established law. Um, in fact, they actually expanded this to say that a company buying another company that holds these franchise agreements actually inherits them. So Ann Arbor signed a contract back in 1895, I believe, to a company, I think it was called the Michigan Electric Company, a small little company, and it was providing power to 26 different electric light bulbs uh, in Ann Arbor. That agreement became a Foot Act franchise agreement, which then got bought by another company that got bought by another company that eventually got bought by DTE. And to this day, DTE now has a perpetual franchise agreement in Ann Arbor, and nobody is allowed to compete with them for providing power, except there is one exception to the Foot Act franchise, and that is that a city can always have a right to its own franchise. A city is able to provide power to itself. So if we ever want to get out from under the boot of DTE and their deceptive business practices and their corrosive uh, impact on our state legislator and the fact that they are undermining renewable efforts across the state and even the nation, there was a recent report that showed that they're uh, heavily lobbying to influence energy policy within the state of California, then we're going to need to do it ourselves. We're going to need to break away from them. So how do we do that? How is it that we municipalize? Well, luckily, we already did the first step. Uh, the city council commissions a feasibility study, and this feasibility study evaluates many of those key metrics that I mentioned before, such as the cost of acquiring assets and how much uh, money it'll make and if it will be able to cover the price of the bonds with the money that it makes. Then it goes to the ballot. The state constitution requires that this be done uh, on the ballot by a vote of the people, and it needs at least a 60% vote in that election, right? So it's 60% yes uh, in the election that it's held. What that will do is it establishes the governance structure and the authorizes the city to begin negotiations with DTE to purchase out their infrastructure. Now, DTE is not exactly likely to be very friendly to this idea, and they probably will not agree to the price that the city uh, offers. So what that means is it's going to have to likely go to court and a court will decide what is the price of these assets. Once the court has decided what the price of the assets are, there's one more vote where we authorize the funding to actually purchase out the infrastructure. And after that, we've got our muni, right? We're able to start moving aggressively towards 100% renewable electricity in Ann Arbor. And, you know, I wanted to throw this in uh, because a lot of this conversation is uh, centering around a lot of the exciting stuff that the city is doing with the sustainable energy utility. Uh, I just want to say that Ann Arbor for Public Power is excited about the sustainable energy utility. We see it as a good uh, first step at uh, moving towards 100% renewable power. It allows us, uh, hopefully at least, to get started quickly on um, getting more resilient local power generation. But there's always going to be a bit of a bottleneck here, right? It's a subscriber-based program. People are going to have to opt into it. Uh, the city's RFP that they recently released estimated at its highest a 50% buy-in rate on the SEU, right? So we can get started on the SEU. We can start to uh, get people installing their own home solar. And in the same time, we can work towards municipalization, right? Which is going to be able to get us to that 100% mark, right? The SEU also is not going to have access to um, buy power from outside of the city, right? It's not going to have access to those power purchase agreements that would allow us to buy power from 
other uh, renewable power generation sources outside of the city, uh, municipalization would open that door for us, right? So I see, and I think that this is a general opinion of Ann Arbor for public power. We see that these are complementary plans, right? We can get started quickly on doing whatever we can without buying the infrastructure. And then once we get that infrastructure, we're able to move quickly and uh, do the rest of the job. And I just wanna leave you uh, with a few successful examples of municipalization from across the country. So uh, Long Island, New York, back in 1998, municipalized their energy utility. They now serve well over a million customers and they managed to reduce their electric rates by an average of 20%. Winter Park, Florida, uh, they actually gave us a fantastic presentation to the Energy Commission back in October of 2021. And I highly recommend that people go back and look at it. They municipalized their power back in 2005. They were primarily concerned about reliability. They were being hit by a lot of hurricanes and their power was being knocked out and they were being left in the dark for weeks because uh, typically the power utility would uh, prioritize the coast. So they municipalized their energy utility and they aggressively started to underground their wires. They're on track to get to 100% of their wires undergrounded at the time of the presentation last year that they were at about 84%. Um, and they did this well paying off the debt on the infrastructure, right? So they were able to uh, pay off the debt of acquiring all the infrastructure and had excess revenue that was able to go back into infrastructure investments. In Jefferson County, Washington in 2008, and I think that this is probably one of the more impressive ones, uh, voted to uh, establish the municipal electric utility. They negotiated with their utility for two years and they were eventually agreed to a $103 million buyout. And then they were able to get to a 97% carbon-free electricity mix, which is one of the cleanest in the country, hopefully soon to be beaten by Ann Arbor though at 100%. Uh, and finally, and I think that this one might be surprising to some people, Boulder, Colorado. A lot of people think of Boulder, Colorado as the boogeyman of municipalization, right? Boulder, Colorado fought a very hard battle for about 10 years during their municipalization fight, and they eventually ended up settling and not going through with uh, municipalization. But that settlement came with some significant benefits of them, uh, an assurance of an 80% statewide greenhouse gas reductions by 2030. So they were fighting to get 100% renewable power within Boulder, much the same that, uh, reasonings that we want to do this here, right? They didn't get that, but they got 80% statewide, which is a much bigger impact than one city. And they also established check-ins where if the utility was not meeting their obligations, they were able to restart the whole process and go back towards municipalization. They also got um, agreements that allow them to upgrade their grid and be able to do more distributed energy generation and underground their wires to enhance the reliability. So this is really the way that you put pressure on a utility, right? Obviously, Ann Arbor for public power, we're looking for the whole enchilada, right? Public power is a better system. It would lead to more reliable, cheaper, and more cleaner energy for Ann Arbor. But even just fighting this fight is going to force concessions out of DTE. So we think that it's a slam dunk. Uh, very excited to present it to you. And I'm very interested to hear any questions that any of you had. I moved through things a little bit quickly because I wanted to be able to give you some time to be able to ask questions, but happy to go into more detail on any of this. That's our website right there, annarborpublicpower.org. We've got a lot of different info on there. So please check it out if you have any questions as well. But yeah, I want to turn it back over to you.
Thank you, Greg. That was really excellent. And um, I would like to offer um, the opportunity for commissioners to ask questions. I see Commissioner Marzan's hand up. Please proceed. I have, uh, thanks for the presentation, it was wonderful. I have two questions. The first is what's the estimated time frame for, mun for municipalization in Ann Arbor? And the second is, do you have any uh, examples of municipalities that had their own uh, power utility and decided to sell it back to a private company or a public company, but not run by the city? Yeah. Um, so first off, estimated timeline. Um, so we're hoping to be able to bring this to ballot in 2023. It's going to rely on uh, the feasibility study finishing in time. Um, but we are currently working with our lawyers to draft that ballot amendment language. And we'll be collecting signatures, hopefully starting here in August, uh, to be able to put that on the ballot. Um, you know, I can't give you an exact estimate of how long it's going to take to fight the battle to acquire the assets. Like I mentioned, many communities, they look at about two years at the most extreme, you know, you see like 10 years. Obviously, I'm hoping we're going to be able to move as quickly on this as possible. But, you know, even if it is 10 years, I remember a quote uh, from Jeff Irwin, uh, State Senator Jeff Irwin, when we first started this. And we were talking to him and he said, you know, we were talking about this 10 to 15 years ago. And we're like, well, yeah, it'd be great, but gosh, it could take 10 to 15 years. Um, so, you know, certainly don't want to be sitting in that position. Uh, as in terms of communities that have decided to sell their municipal utility back, um, well, I can give you one, and it's Ann Arbor. Uh, Ann Arbor actually had a municipal electric utility um, back until the early 20th century, and they decided to sell it off. Um, but it's, it's not an uncommon thing. Uh, cities end up into budgetary trouble. Um, it's a very profitable thing for a private investor to be able to own. Um, and they tend to pretty aggressively try to go after cities uh, going uh, to pressure them to sell off their municipal energy utility. Uh, Dennis Kucinich famously fought a battle against a privatization effort back in Cleveland. Uh, and it was pretty, it was pretty uh, dirty. In fact, there's, uh, there's an article plenty of articles that are right about how you face assassination attempts throughout that process. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is serious business. It's big money here uh, and private utilities want to own these things because it is an absolute cash cow for them. It's one of the most reliable investments you can make because it's state enforced. There is a percentage that the state guarantees a private utility will get in profit, right? And one of the reasons why it's just so much easier for a municipal utility to perform better than these IOUs is because they simply don't have to shave off that money off the top to go to shareholders, right? They're able to take every dollar that people are paying for their energy and put it back in towards into making a better energy utility for their community. Uh, Commissioner Gruber. Thank you. That was very informative. I, I wonder if you know, you brought, you mentioned the example in Jefferson County and that they're at 97% renewables. Do you know if, if that example or another, of another example where they were able to put a source from a lot of renewables, but also reduce the cost to the consumers? I, um, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly what the cost breakdown for Jefferson County, Washington was. Um, 
certainly, you know, there is a balance there, right? Um, can I guarantee that if Ann Arbor municipalizes, especially with their ambitious climate goals, that they're going to be paying less for their electricity out the gate? No. Um, there is a very good chance that Ann Arbor is going to be paying similar or more rates out the bat, especially if we're going to aggressively pursue our climate goals. However, over time, pretty much in every single case, municipal energy utilities end up paying less, right? The rate of rate increases is much slower with municipal energy utilities. Um, and you can look at examples all over the country in the state for that, right? There's a, a lot of these utility, uh, municipal energy utilities, well, pretty much every single municipal energy utility in Michigan pays less for their power. They're also fairly well established. So, uh, you know, there may be a bit of a ramp up, but you also got to look at this of what is the cost of climate change, right? What is the cost of inaction on climate, right? Um, so, you know, I'm very excited for a feasibility study to be able to lay out some of the cost breakdowns. I definitely believe that we're going to be able to stay competitive to DTE just because of how much that they pull out of our system. But if we want to aggressively pursue reliability and aggressively pursue renewable energy, we might end up paying a little bit more. The great thing, though, is that this is something that the voters would be able to have a say in, right? It's suddenly under democratic control and we get to choose our own priorities rather than have them handed to us by a company that's really only interested in making money. Other questions? Greg, I have one. Um, right. uh, if anyone else has one, please join in. Um, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit of your discussion on um, some of the legal issues that might come up and complexities related to that? Uh, legal issues related to municipalizing? Right. Uh, certainly, yeah. I, so we, Ann Arbor Public Power, when we first started going into this, this is kind of the thing we cut our teeth on to, for, uh, to begin with, right? We really, uh, the legal history of this was pretty hard to untangle. Um, and we were getting conflicting answers from different uh, people about exactly how legal was this. We decided to commission a legal report from the law firm OBH up in Traverse City. Um, the partner that worked on this was Chris Mizdock, former mayor of Traverse City, um, and also served on the Traverse City Board of Power and Light there. Very experienced in utility matters and also a very well accomplished environmental lawyer. Um, and they did a legal analysis that showed pretty concretely that this is a legal path for us, right? It, it is built into the DNA of the state constitution, as Chris Bisnock put it. And he did a really excellent um, explanation of this in a roundtable that we held a few months ago, which I'd be happy to share with the commission. Um, but there's certainly DTE is not going to take this rolling over, right? They may not be able to oppose our ability to do it, but they certainly are going to try to slow down the process as much as they can on um, trying to get the valuation of the assets, right? Now, it, there, are, there are formulas uh, for how you value the assets, right? There are going to be a few things that people squabble over, right? One of the big ones is typically stranded costs, right? Stranded costs are essentially, uh, the utility is going to claim that uh, there is so much infrastructure that they used to support Ann Arbor that we aren't buying, that we need to compensate them for, right? Um, this is something that tends to be pretty, uh, fiercely negotiated within municipalization battles. 
Uh, Winter Park, Florida gave some really good insights into this uh, in their presentation to the Energy Commission. Uh, they did not believe that they should have had to pay um, nearly the amount of stranded asset costs that they did. They ultimately ended up agreeing to pay um, some of them because they just wanted to end the legal battle. So these are the considerations that have to be taken into effect, certainly. And, you know, the city has some fairly well-accomplished lawyers uh, that will be able to fight this battle out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly there are issues that are going to come up. And it's also been the first time in about 100 years that this has happened in Michigan, right? The last uh, city to do this was Traverse City back in about 1920s. Um, and so there's going to be a little bit of figuring it out uh, for everyone involved at the state level, the, um, you know, in the courts and things like that, uh, which we see as something that it is a challenge, right? But it also is an opportunity. If Ann Arbor is able to municipalize, we will have established a legal roadmap for it. We will have shown everyone in the state how it is that you can break free of your municipal uh, or of your investor-owned utility. And that will open up the door for other communities across the state to follow on the same pathway. That's going to be very scary to the investor-owned utilities. And that is going to force them to either come to the table and meet the demands of these communities or face the prospect of the same thing that happened in Arbor is going to happen across the country or across the state, uh, which we see is very exciting, right? It's, it's a way for us to both uh, find something better for our community, uh, as well as help everyone else in the state to reach uh, you know, their goals and to uh, build towards that renewable energy future that we absolutely need to move to, right? There's no real choice in the matter. We, we've got to get off of these fossil fuels and this is just the most effective way to do it. Thank you. I see Commissioner Gruber has another question. Thank you. Uh, the, the conversation there just made me think about, uh, you gave some great examples from Florida and Washington and um, other Colorado. Were the state laws in those states comparable to what we have here in Michigan? Were they also going over this hurdle of a hundred years? It's been a hundred years since um, they've municipalized. Uh, can you share some similarities or differences between those? Yeah, definitely. So some communities have it easier. Some communities have it harder. Boulder um, in Colorado, they had it harder. There was a lot, uh, it's not built into their state constitution that they're allowed to do this. And also, um, there was ways that they did it. They made a few mistakes along the pathway of, you know, how they were structuring these proposals that left them open to legal liability earlier in the process than probably should have been able to be done, right? This utility was able to sue before they actually started trying to acquire the assets. Um, in communities like Winter Park, Florida, uh, it was a bit easier, right? They didn't have these perpetual franchise agreements that we have, which allowed them to be able to essentially just cancel their franchise agreement rather than having to go through the condemnation process the same way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a different, you know, every state's going to be different legal uh, case. You're going to have your benefits and pluses in your law. Um, we're certainly not in the easiest state to do it, but we also are in a state where it is not really a question of whether it's legal, right? Sometimes you go down these pathways and it's like, it's it's it might be legal, right? Based on the interpretation. In Michigan, it is in the state constitution. It outlines the mechanism by which you do this, right? So that's a huge advantage that we have. Right, thank you. Um, I think this should be our last question just because of the time. 
Um, so thank you, Kathy, uh, Commissioner Griswold, Councilmember Griswold. Uh, yes, Greg, I just want to thank you and say I have heard this presentation a few times, and every time I hear it, uh, I learn something new, and it's equally interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate your um, being patient with coming back a second time, and um, thanks, and um, we'll, we'll stay in touch. We'll have this um, presentation on our um, in our minutes and available for everyone to view at any time. Fantastic, so, thank you. And feel free right. to reach out with any questions that any of you have. Great, thanks. Um, we're gonna move on to our second presentation, which is Professor Dick Norton. Um, who will be talking about uh, tree ordinance in Canton, Michigan, um, Township, Michigan, and the effect it had on um, their preservation of trees and, and some legal aspects of it. It's a complicated story, and I really appreciate um, this discussion, this opportunity to talk it through because we're trying to protect our trees here in Ann Arbor, and we, we need to have a, a good approach to move forward. So um, I'll turn the screen over to Professor Norton, and thank you for being here. And thank you, um, Councilmember Dish, for arranging this in the first place. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to start off by confessing right away. I haven't done my homework to go back and look at Ann Arbor's tree preservation ordinance <laughs> or, or what you're proposing to do, so I can't speak to the particulars of, of Ann Arbor. But I was asked to come in and talk about Kenton Township's experience, and I think it's very relevant to what you all are facing. Let me just quickly explain. I teach in the Urban and Regional Planning Program at the University of Michigan. I'm a planner and a lawyer. So I teach our planning law, our planning students the law that they need to know to become professional practicing planners. And I've been studying um, Michigan law since I've been here for 20 years. I've also been a member of the Michigan Association of Planning for about that time, and I'm on the MAPS Planning Law Committee. So over the course of the past 20 years, I, I actually helped draft what are now the Michigan Planning Enabling Act and the Michigan Zoning Enabling Act, the consolidation of those acts. And I've also written friend of the court or amicus curiae briefs to the Michigan courts and now the federal courts on behalf of MAP speaking to issues that are of great concern to communities in their planning and zoning efforts. And that's how I got involved in this Canton Township work. Um, I'll explain in a minute. Canton Township has a tree preservation ordinance. Um, they have some property owners who didn't want to be subjected to it. They cut down a lot of trees and they ended up in litigation. Um, they lost in both state court and federal court. And then they approached MAP and asked if we would write an amicus carry brief or uh, the case going up to the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's where I got involved and wrote that brief. And that now the state case is in front of the um, State Court of Appeals. So I just filed a brief on behalf of that case. So I'm in the thick of the legal arguments that are going on here. And so I'm going to focus on the law in my presentation. I see there's a question that I'm happy to address. Yeah, I just wanted a, a clarification. Who lost in the, the, the lawsuit? The loss has lost seats several times. Yeah, so I'll, I'll okay. explain. I'll explain the history here a little bit. I just wanted to explain to you who I am. <laughs> Why am I here talking to you? Okay, let me see if I can share my screen. 
Can you all see that? Okay, so there are two cases involved here. The one that's been resolved up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals was FT, FP Development versus Canton Township. Um, we made the, I made this presentation along with Emily Palacios and Mark Wyckoff um, to, for a webinar for the MAP membership. And then we were, Emily and I gave a similar presentation to the um, State Bars Government Law section. And I'm drawing from that, um, drawing from that presentation. So just to give credit where credit's due. So let me get some background. There uh, is a set of property. It was owned by a, a property owner who uh, his business name is FP Development. He split the property um, and sold it, part of it to a, a smaller lot to a neighboring property owned, the company name is 44650 Inc. So the two cases are FP Development and 44650. Um, both property owners basically went in and clear cut their properties. They, they bought the they bought the land, FP Development bought it, and then when he split it and sold it, they both knew about the tree preservation ordinance because the township told them about it multiple times. Um, but they went ahead and clear cut pretty much the entire property nonetheless. By the time Canton Township found out about it, the, all the trees or most of them were down. So Canton Township was put in the position of having to go back after the fact to enforce its ordinance, which it did against 44650 which is the smaller parcel, but they cut down way more trees. So um, they were the, the larger offender, if you will. When <clears throat> the FP development saw what was happening, um, he filed suit in federal court trying to preempt the township from going after him. So now we have a, a state court case where the city's suing the property owner and we have a federal court case where the property owner is suing the city, Canton Township, it's a township. So two, it's a little bit confusing. <laughs> I can't keep straight what's going on here. This is just the before and after this. I got this from the township attorney. So I, I think both of the properties are in that section and you can see they pretty much took out all of the trees. So um, a couple thousand trees, I think all told. So let me explain the ordinance. The purpose of Canton Township's pre-preservation ordinance is to maintain and enhance the tree canopy and certain landmark trees. It uh, applies to what are defined as regulated trees in the ordinance itself. They're large mature trees over six, six inch DVH or trees that are in a forest, um, which is a canopy um, exceeding a half acre in size. And then they also have special provisions for landmark trees which they define as trees of 24 inch DBH of certain species. So they, they lay out the species that all of this applies to as well. Procedurally, a property owner is supposed to obtain a permit from the township before cutting any trees. And as part of that process, they're to confer with the staff and then they're supposed to take steps to mitigate any harms that the tree cutting would cause. And they basically have a choice. The, the ordinance makes clear the preference is to, well, first of all, design your project to avoid taking trees as much as possible. If you have to take trees, you can mitigate ideally by replanting new trees on site. If you can't do it on site because of the nature of the project or the site itself, you can replant elsewhere in the township on your own. Or if you don't wanna do that, you can pay into a tree replanting fund that the township uses to plant trees elsewhere. And it is no one contested that the township is collecting those funds and using them strictly to plant trees. It's not a revenue generating source for the township at all. It's, it's a mitigation process. 
Um, they do include some penalties too, but they're trivial and the township didn't exercise them. All, all really what's at issue here is the replanting cost for mitigation. Um, <clears throat> the ordinance does bake in some pretty substantial exclusions. The biggest one to my mind is that it excludes all smaller lots, smaller than two acres. That's actually a substantial portion of the township that this doesn't actually apply to. They also exempt, uh, if you're cutting in an in a area that you're allowed to do silviculture or farming that you can cut to put in nursery trees or agriculture and you don't have to subscribe to the ordinance. Okay, so FP development took preemptively the township to court in federal court alleging some different things. First, he alleged that you're taking my trees in violation of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, you're seizing property. Um, that you shouldn't be able to seize. He also alleged that the fee replanting, the replanting fees they were um, assessing amounted to excessive fines in violation of the Eighth Amendment. And then he alleged that this is a regulatory taking in violation of the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments. The Fifth Amendment <coughs> states, nor shall, <coughs> excuse me, private property be taken for public use without just compensation provided. Um, I'll explain this in a few minutes. That's become part of the regulatory takings doctrine. It's applicable to states and townships by virtue of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and he alleged both facial and as applied takings. I'll explain that in a minute. And he also alleged this strange thing called an unconstitutional conditions test, which I'll explain in a minute. I'm just running too quickly what happened here. The US District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan, which is in Detroit, dismissed the unlawful seizure claims and the Eighth Amendment claims um, didn't find that they had merit. But the trial court, federal trial court, um, did find an as applied regulatory taking. And he did that both by applying an ad hoc balancing test and by applying the unconstitutional conditions test. <clears throat> this case then went up to appeal uh, to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And this is again, where I got involved with this case with, along with my colleagues on the planning law committee. And this was argued in front of the court um, uh, last June. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court. So there's no live claim here that, that this ordinance affects an unconstitutional seizure or unconstitutional fines. And the court noted that this Nolan Dolan unconstitutional conditions test may not apply, but we're going to apply it anyways because the parties didn't contest that. And I'll explain where that came from in a minute. And then it, affor it affirmed the taking on this reproportionality test. And because of that, it, it specifically set aside the other theory for a regulatory taking. So all of this has some implications that I'll explain. Before I get there, though, now I want to step back and explain what the heck is a regulatory taking. And I honestly don't know if any of you have been exposed to this. This is really arcane legal doctrine. So let me just kind of quickly explain. Whenever a property owner is unhappy that they're being regulated in a way that they think is unfair, they almost always bring a due process claim. You're violating my due process rights under the federal and state constitutional protections. They often will bring equal protection claims and they'll almost always bring a regulatory takings claim. Your regulation is so harming the value of my property, you should compensate me for it. Where is that coming from? Well, we do have a constitutional protection against the taking, the unfair taking of private property. That's again in the Fifth Amendment. And then there's a parallel clause in the Michigan Constitution. 
And nobody can test that the government has the authority to take your property. What they have to show is they're doing it for a public purpose and that they're providing just compensation. So all of the litigation has boiled down to is the, are they taking it for a good reason and are they paying just compensation to do it? That's pretty well settled law. It's actually more stringent in Michigan than in federal law, but it's pretty well settled. Due process and equal protection are really getting at this question of, is the government being fair? Is it treating the property owner fairly? And that's usually assessed in the context of a means end calculation. What's the harm they're trying to avoid? And is the way they're getting there a reasonable way to get there? Is the government, does the government have a good reason for why it's doing what it's doing? Is it a legitimate purpose? And is it a reasonable way to get there? Most due process claims typically fail, especially when the government has a good reason for why they're regulating to protect trees or whatever they're doing. And they've laid out a pretty clear reason for why we're going there. So most usually when you um, lose, when a government loses a due process claim, it's because it's really being abusive. There's just something really wrong with the process they use, or it's just clear that they're being unfair to a particular property owner. I don't, I don't think the property owners here even brought due process claims. There was no question that the township had a reason for why it was protecting trees and how it got there. It was really, it was really the takings claim that um, became important. So now let me talk about a regulatory taking. The idea behind a regulatory taking is that is the argument that a property owner makes that you're using your regulation to so control my use of my property, you're really effectively taking it from me through a regulation. And if you're gonna do that, you should have just condemned it and taken it as a park or whatever it is you want me to use it for and paid me for it, taken title to it, instead of regulating away all of the viable use of the property. I'm, I'm looking at Rita, cause I can see your face. Is that making sense? <laughs> I always like, this is making sense to you as I explain it. So, so the idea the courts are very suspicious that sometimes governments, they know they don't want to pay for a piece of property. Well, let's not pay for it. Let's just regulate it to get what we want and avoid having to take it. And when when um, famous case in 1922 kind of articulated this regulatory takings doctrine, this is Justice Holmes, who was famous for making quips that sound great in theory, but are really hard to figure out what they mean. He famously said, when a regulation goes too far, the courts will deem it a taking. If you go so far in your regulation that you're just abusing a property owner and you're basically taking it through regulation instead of taking title to it, you should just take title to it. Okay, so now the phrase that's commonly used by all the courts to explain the takings doctrine is that it's all about making sure that government doesn't force some people to bear alone burdens which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. In other words, if you want somebody to turn their vacant lot into a butterfly farm for everybody to enjoy, and you're gonna tell them you can't do anything except grow butterflies on your property, just buy the property and turn it into a park. Don't force them to bear the burden of having a public park for everybody else's benefit. That's, that's the logic behind the regulatory taking. The problem now that we've dealt with, this, this case came down in 1922. It sat quiet for about 50 years. And then government started to regulate to protect the environment. We started to re realize, oh my gosh, we're doing all this destruction to the environment. We're gonna start adopting regulations to stop that. And then property owners started to say, wait a minute, you're regulating all of my use of my property. You should just pay me for it. 
we've had tons of litigation now that have tried to clarify in Justice Holmes' famous quote, what does it mean to go too far? So here's why I'm going to step through this taken. And this is an arcane doctrine. So there are some preliminary things. If it's just a temporary regulation, if you put a moratorium down to say, we're not going to issue permits for a year while we refigured our planning documents, the courts will probably tell you that's not a taking. That's okay. So you got to get through those preliminary steps. And you also, one thing to bear notice or note is you look at the whole parcel. So if you have a regulation that just affects a strip of the land, say along a buffer, along a stream, you don't just look at the buffer and say, did you take that buffer? You look at the whole parcel and say, well, you, you have your whole parcel of land. We're telling you to keep a buffer there. We're not going to just sever off that buffer and tell the city to buy it. You kind of have to look at the whole picture. That'll make more sense in a minute, I think. Okay, so now we ask a series of questions. The regulatory takings doctrine really vindicates two key rights that we own when we own private property. One right is the right to exclude, and the other right is the right to use. If the government adopts a regulation that compels you to let somebody onto your property that you don't want to let onto your property, the courts call that an ouster. You've taken away their right to exclude. The paradigmatic case here was a New York law that required property owners to let the cable TV company drape a cable across the property. They weren't using the cable TV. They didn't want to have it. They didn't want the cable, but the city said, you got to let them do it. The court said, that's a taking. You're forcing a physical occupation of their land. You have to pay for it. By the way, the remedy in that case was a dollar. It was a, it was a case to make a point. So if a regulation compels an ouster, it's a taking. If it doesn't compel an ouster, the next question you ask, now we're getting at your right to use your property. The second categorical rule that the courts have articulated is the total economic deprivation case. If the regulation takes all of the economic value of the property, there's literally nothing you can do with it or nothing else you can do with it. The courts have said categorically, that's a taking, except kind of wait, maybe they put on a qualifier. Maybe there are background principles of state nuisance and property law that wouldn't let you do what you're wanting to do in the first place. And if that's the case, and all the regulation is doing is codifying that rule, then it's just codifying um, things that you couldn't do before. You never owned that right. So that here's the paradigmatic case as a nuisance. You don't have the right to use your property in a way that creates a nuisance for your neighbor. Right. I can't put a fig, pig farm in my backyard and have lots of pigs and, and drive my neighbors out the door because they can't stay in the smell anymore because that's a nuisance. If the city adopts an ordinance that says you can't have a pig yard in your back farm, well, I never owned that right in the first place. So being regulated and being told that you can't do that didn't take anything from me. It's not a taking. Does that make sense? So there's that qualification on a total economic deprivation. Most cases nowadays do not compel ousters or total economic deprivations because governments have learned, don't do that. <laughs> give, you know, don't, don't force somebody to take someone on their property that they don't want to have and make sure you give them something they can do with their property. So now you end up in the category of cases that are usually litigated and it's this is the Penn Central ad hoc balancing test. Ad hoc means case specific or site specific. And basically the court laid out some factors. The courts are to look at, the Supreme Court laid out these factors. What's the economic impact on the property owner? 
what are their reasonable expectations when they bought the land and why is the government doing this? And the, the courts are to balance those factors and figure out, is this an unfair burden to put on this individual property owner? Is it one that should be spread out across everybody else? And if the answer is, this is an unfair burden, it's just asking too much for this property owner to do this, given what the government's trying to do, it's a taking. If it's not an unfair burden, it's not a taking, so you're done. <clears throat> All right, with me so far? Those are the three basic tests for what constitutes a regulatory taking. Now we've got this weird situation called this unconstitutional conditions doctrine, and this really came to the fore in the FP development regulation. And basically what the courts are ruling is, well, sometimes government doesn't just flat out tell you you need to give me an easement. You need to give us Ann Arbor an easement across your back lot because we want people to be able to get through. Instead, the developer says, I want to build something here. And the city says, well, we'll let you build. We'll give you a permit to do the building project you want to build. But you need to give an easement to the city in exchange because we want to create a path for the people to get through. Now, if the city went to this property owner and said, you need to give us an easement, that would be a taking, right? You're forcing a physical occupation. What if the developer's asking for something in exchange? The courts have said, well, maybe that's still okay. We'll apply this unconstitutional conditions test. And now that's raising um, two questions. Well, first of all, if, if it's a flat out regulation, you need to give us an easement or you need to, we're regulating your property so much that you don't can't do anything with it. And that has nothing to do with a permitting decision. It's a taking, you're done. If it's in the form of a, permit condition, you can build your project, but you need to give us the city something in exchange. The first question the court asks is, is there an essential nexus? Is there some relationship between what you're demanding from the property owner and what, what um, they're proposing? The paradigmatic case here was a California case where a property owner wanted to build a bit taller house. The California Coastal Commission said, you can build a taller house, but you need to give us an easement across your property. The court said, there's nothing about a dollar house that's creating a hardship for people to get across your property. That's just, that's abusive. You're demanding something from this property owner that's not in any way related to the project that they're trying to develop. Okay, there's gotta be in a relationship. A later case said, okay, if you have an essential nexus, it still also needs to be roughly proportional. So this is the Tigard, Oregon case where a, hard, a hardware owner wanted to build on her, her hardware shop. The, the city said, you can build, but we want you to give us an easement. It turns out the city's trying to build a greenway along the riverscape. And they basically were using this property owner to get that last piece of easement behind her property to finish off, you know, to add to their greenway. And there was really no evidence that the people using the hardware store were going to add that much more traffic to the bikeway to make it roughly proportional. The court basically said, yeah, maybe some people will bike. There's an essential nexus, but you're asking way too much from this property owner for what you're trying to get at. If you want to have your greenway, buy the easement from the property owner. Don't force them to give it to you in exchange for a permit. That's the unconstitutional conditions test. If you can pass both of those questions, yep, there's a, there, you know, we're issuing a permit, we're asking for something in exchange. It's there's a reason for why we're asking for it, and it's roughly proportional. It's not a taking. So in any of these situations, if you find out if a court says you government are abusing this property owner, you've got to, to a taking, 
then the government really decides they're either going to go ahead and condemn the property, pay for it, or they'll rescind the regulation and just let the property owner do what they want to do. That's the basic log logic of a regulatory takings doctrine. I've explained it in about, what, five, 10 minutes. It takes me a couple sessions in my planning law class to really get it across to my students. So if you're feeling confused, don't worry, this confuses a lot of people. I've tried to simplify it as much as I can, but it's a pretty arcane doctrine. That's the background that we went into this court case um, in front of the Sixth Circuit. Now, so let me go back to this, what happened in FP development and specifically the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. There's been some confusion about when exactly should this test apply. Um, if you think about it, for most of the time when you apply a Penn Central analysis, an ad hoc balancing test, usually the government wins because usually what they're demanding from a property owner is pretty reasonable. And yeah, it puts a burden on the property owner, but it's not overwhelming. And, and so and nowadays, it's pretty hard for government to lose a takings claim. I mean, usually we develop the regulations well enough that that doesn't happen. But if you think about it, if you have to ask these extra questions, is there an essential nexus and is there a proportionality? That's the courts looking more closely at what the government's doing here and making it more likely that they're going to find a taking. And so I think that's leading to some abuse of this doctrine. The key thing to keep in mind is that the unconstitutional conditions doctrine only applies if what the government is de demanding would clearly be unconstitutional on its face. All of the cases that have involved the creation of this test were cases where the government was telling a property owner, give us an easement across your property. If you're demanding an easement from a property owner and telling him or her she's got to let people walk across their lawn, that's a physical invasion. That's a taking. You're, you're taking something from them. That's when you start to say, well, but maybe that's okay because they're being able to do something with their property they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Maybe there's some benefit here that's coming back. <clears throat> so usually um, what's happened is theoretically, this test should only apply when you first realize that the demand being made by the government clearly would be a taking. And then you apply these two-part tests. The problem we're running into is in Canton Township's case, the property owner alleged that an exaction, a demand on a permit, is anything that the government asks for whenever they ask for it, whenever they demand a permit. So stop and think about this. Basically, what they're saying is if you have a permit condition on a site plan approval, you're not giving anything to the property owner. You're just checking to make sure that they're complying with the law. But because it's a permit, now the court's saying, well, that's an exaction. We have to apply this heightened level of judicial scrutiny, the unconstitutional conditions test. If, if this decision keeps going, it's going to open up communities to a whole lot of litigation that they haven't had to face so far. That's what got me, that about dropped me off my chair when I first realized what was going on. The better definition of exaction is that it's a demand being made under the color of law for something that you don't have the right to demand, right? It's a really burdensome, onerous thing to demand. And it's only when you've shown there's a taking happening here that you should apply this test. Okay, what happened? Um, the trial court in FP Development applied the test and they found, he found it was a taking based on um, his assessment of the township's test. 
And and what happened was the township, um, I'll talk more about this in a minute, but they had what the court perceived to be old information. They didn't have an individualized assessment to figure out is the benefit that you're getting or the harm you're trying to prevent roughly proportional to the demand you're making on the property owner. Um, it was just a mechanical application of a replanting scheme and the court did not like that. <coughs> when it went up to the Sixth Circuit, um, we, the map, amicus brief, for the first time pointed out to the court, wait a minute, this test doesn't even apply because Canton Township is not making a demand that's an exaction. The trial court got it wrong. This is where the court said, an interesting question has been raised by this amicus, frankly, that we shouldn't even be applying this test, but the parties didn't raise it. And so we're not, we're going to set that aside and we're going to go ahead and apply the test. Having done that, the court affirmed the trial court's ruling and, and held that there was a taking. Oh my gosh, that's really bad precedent. The interesting thing that happened two months or so after the Sixth Circuit came down with its ruling, the um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, answered a question, it took up a case that addressed exactly this question. And the way the Ninth Circuit ruled on it was exactly the way that we were arguing in our brief, this is the way you should treat it. So there is some federal circuit precedent out there now to say the Sixth Circuit went the wrong way. Fortunately for us, the Sixth Circuit made it clear, we're not answering this question, we're setting it aside. All of that just to say there's some room here to move in a way that um, maybe wouldn't have been the case. But having said that, now that the federal court cases have been resolved, now the state court cases are back up. After the property owner um, won his case in the federal court, the state courts proceeded. The state court um, basically found for the property owner following the same reasoning. It's even more egregious in a sense. This was a smaller lot. This is now the second case, the state case smaller lot, but they cut down way more trees. So instead of being assessed a $40,000 tree replanting fine or fund requirement, they this property owner was hit with a $400,000 tree replanting fee. They just took out so many trees. <clears throat> the trial court, um, you've all had this, so I'm not gonna read this all word for, for, word for word, but basically the trial court was very unsympathetic to the idea that Kent Township had any reason to be protecting trees and found that this was an overly burdensome regulation and um, pretty much followed the federal district court's ruling in the FP development case and, and found against the township. So now the township has lost its um, litigation in both federal and state court. They lost an appeal at the Sixth Circuit. They're currently, this, the state court case is up in front of the Court of Appeals right now as we speak. Not good precedent for um, thinking about tree preservation in Michigan, at least so far. We'll see how the Court of Appeals rules. Um, we did talk briefly about another case that's been in litigation that's relevant. This is Ann Arbor Charter Township. Um, again, just quickly, they've got a much more developed um, regulatory scheme to protect natural features. Um, there was a proposal to build at the corner of Plymouth and 23 KI properties. The Planning Commission denied their site plan that was upheld by their ZBA. <clears throat> it went up to, on litigation. The trial court reversed, ordered the township to issue the permit. That got appealed up to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals reversed and sent it back down. So now it's in litigation again on the merits. So the, 
I think it's going to trial, or it, it maybe has gone to trial, I'm not sure I haven't checked, on these questions about, well, does it constitute an uh, unlawful constitutional claim? The important thing about this case was that the way that Arnover Township did it was much better than the way that Canton Township did it. They did a plain, they did plain studies. They really documented the resources they're trying to protect. They folded them into their planning documents um, and just did a much better job of documenting why they were doing what they're doing and then justifying why they made the decisions they made and how that's preserving um, natural features. And that pretty clearly persuaded the Court of Appeals that there was much more merit to what was happening here in terms of the governmental regulation than what any of the courts in the Canton Township um, cases were doing. <clears throat> so um, again, uh, and this is all just detail saying the township spent the time to do the studies it needed to do to justify what it was doing and to make sure that the burdens it was imposing were reasonable for a particular property owner. So this all leads us to some thoughts on how you, Ann Arbor, might think about what you're doing as you move forward with your tree preservation ordinance. The bottom line we keep arguing is do your planning studies, do your work up front, make sure you're documenting where your natural features are, why they're important, um, all of the ways that they're important. Fortunately for you, there's lots of good and growing evidence about how important trees are for things like water quality and air quality and temperature mitigation and uh, carbon sequestration, all of those things, none of that was done by Canton Township. They hadn't documented uh, anything along those lines. So document, 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 lay out goals and objectives that are clearly related then to the studies that you've done, documenting the importance of your natural features, link those objectives to your zoning code. So make it really clear in your zoning ordinance or if you have a separate tree preservation ordinance or however you're doing it, make sure you draw that link between the actual regulations you're adopting and the planning studies you've done. And that if you're gonna require mitigation, you've got a pretty good process laid out for why you're doing it and why you're requiring the mitigation that you're requiring. And then <clears throat> when you actually administer the permitting process, um, make sure that you do uh, have tree experts, civil cultural experts, somebody with some specialized knowledge on tree and natural features, do the analysis to be able to really document with the best current literature about what's going on here and why this is important. Um, be prepared to um, be flexible. Um, make sure that you're accounting for the benefits that trees provide. One of the quirks of Canton Township's ordinance was you have to replace dead and dying trees as if it were a live and healthy tree. Well, that's not really fair. It's, at that point, the tree's not providing natural features benefits, and yet you're making the property owner fully mitigate for that. Maybe that's not so fair. So kind of take a kind of site conditions. In fact, maybe sometimes good civil cultural practice calls for thinning out trees um, to allow the existing trees to grow better. So there may be good reasons to allow cutting, make that part of a good civil cultural ecological study. Um, and then tailor as much as you can but make sure it's reasonable. Um, the trial court, I'm gonna finish this off and then close my slides so that I can talk to you more one-on-one -on -one instead of to my screen. Um, the trick here is to strike the balance between having really good analysis and preparation going in, and then having really good process laid out so that when you're dealing with an individual property owner, you're doing a particular assessment for that property to really justify why you're requiring what you're doing and why it's important and why it's needed. 
and, and you're able to tweak it as appropriate given site conditions. There may be extenuating circumstances where, where you don't need to apply the um, ordinance as strictly as you did. So let me just finish off by saying that Canton Townships, um, I say this diplomatically, I think what happened in Canton Township was the communities have been adopting tree preservation, preservation ordinances for a while because we all know it's good to preserving trees. And I think somebody in the township just found an ordinance on the web that was out there that was offered as a model ordinance and they tweaked it a little bit and they adopted it. And they never did any planning studies. They never really documented what they have. They didn't really think through carefully how they were going to administer it. Um, they didn't have, they just had a staff planner on site who had no particular training um, I don't think in silvicultural practices or tree forest practices, they, they might've gotten one involved, but the person who normally administered it apparently didn't do that. So in a way, Kent Township did everything it could do to make it really hard to defend its ordinance. And then it made it really hard for the lawyers to defend the ordinance when it got litigated. So it was really hard. You know, this court of appeals and the trial courts were like, why are you protecting trees? We don't see any benefit because the township never pointed out all of the things that trees do. All they heard, all the courts heard was, you're worried about aesthetics. You want to keep a pretty, you know, keep some pretty trees. And you're going to force this property owner to pay $40,000 to keep your aesthetics going. That doesn't sound reasonable. So they didn't document all of the reasons that trees are important. And then they, the courts just really felt that the process for assessing, why are you demanding this from this property owner was too mechanical. And in fact, on, on dep deposition, the, the township planner basically said, yeah, we don't really think about it. We just apply it. Well, that's probably the worst thing he could have said um, because it just it just hit the court like you've got this really unfair requirement that you're mechanically applying to these property owners. And there's just nothing to take account of the site conditions or why you're really doing this to justify it. So no good planning studies to justify why they were doing up front and really limited procedures to, to apply it in practice and make sure it's working the way it's supposed to work for a particular property owner, it's defendable. So I am hopeful that the courts, you know, the nuances of what I talked about on the unconstitutional conditions test, I hope the Michigan courts don't go there. Even if they do, it's not the end of the world for communities like Ann Arbor, but it's just gonna force you to be even that much more careful when you do your tree preservation work to make sure that it's justifiable and, and that it's being applied in a reasonable way. I hope I didn't lose you all. I'm more than happy to answer questions um, to better explain what I've tried to come present. Th thanks for your attention. Thank you very much for that review of a really complicated situation. Um, and I'm sorry to hear about that for Canton and their loss. Um, does anyone wanna kick off some? Questions? I, usually it means I flummoxed everybody so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty dense. <laughs> uh, Council member Dish. Yeah, I have two questions. So yep. <clears throat> one is going back to the point that knocked you off your chair. You said, so is is the idea that um, was, did did I I think I I have to have misunderstood you because otherwise this would be so broad. But is the claim that was being made in the state 
case, the state level case that went up to the Sixth Circuit Court, that any permanent any permit requirement is an exaction. That's where you could read it. That you could read the case to have established that. That would be that would that's, be impossible. That would be really bad. Yeah. That and that's what has me so frightened about what's happened with this case and, and how it's gone up to the Sixth Circuit. Fortunately, there are federal, there are US Supreme Court cases that have pretty clearly said that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And the Sixth Circuit in its decision said, we know that question has been raised, mm -hmm. but we're setting it aside because the parties below didn't. So they have the they have the ability to say, well, they didn't get briefed below, so we're not going to entertain that case here. Mm -hmm. Having said that, they went ahead and applied the test anyways, and they still found it to be a taking. So now the property owners are arguing in the state case, state court case, look, they've applied it in the federal court. You have to follow that. So I'm really worried about that. <laughs> the other okay. thing that then happened was the Ninth Circuit, which which addressed a question that was just right on this question. Does any permit trip, does any permit requirement trip uh, on constitutional conditions? And the Ninth Circuit said, no, there's got to be a really, it's got to be an exaction. It's got to be a really unconstitutional demand to trip that extra taste. So if this gets litigated, hopefully the courts will go follow the Ninth Circuit and they won't follow the Sixth Circuit. But we don't know for sure where that's going to go. And it's kind of a mess if you have them treating in practice as if you know, we're not going to address the question if it tripped it or not, but we're actually going to act as if it did. That's a mess. <laughs> so, And then you've got the Ninth. That's good. That's better than not having the Ninth. But it, it yeah. really does seem like an incredible mess. I mean, and it... I mean, there's just no way that per, that that it's not okay for governments to require permits about things. No. I mean, that just can't that that doesn't make any sense. So, no. but it would save the city a lot of money, I guess, to get rid of all the departments that we have um, reviewing permits. <laughs> yeah, it would force cities to. I think it would mean you'd stop issuing permits. You just enforce your ordinance. If someone's violating it, you go after them and you tell them what the rules are, and you don't do a permitting check process because that could trip a regulatory taking. So you just put people on notice. If you don't, if you violate the law, we'll prosecute you. Wow. There's so many ways that this is actually harmful to property owners. Yeah. It would be harmful to property owners, but the courts weren't thinking that through because that wasn't the way it was framed as they looked at it. Yeah, and that's odd. A, yeah, there's a lot of loose discussion out in the literature about what an exaction is that, that these property owners picked up on and used and the court just took it without thinking about it. And the township attorneys just didn't pick up on it either and they let it slip and that that created this condition where the sixth circuit said well they didn't brief it we're, we're not going to consider it i thought courts were supposed to be smarter than that um so the um <laughs> okay yeah so a concern that we have in ann arbor uh, and currently is going on in, in my ward one of my constituents is that um our tree preservation ordinances don't affect what individual homeowners do on their property. And so this is definitely a problem, but it's really a problem when you're dealing with trees that are in a sense shared, right? There are lots of trees that are on the property line or that provide benefit to two property owners. And so the feeling is that they are a shared tree. And right now we don't have any way of, of encouraging 
people to work out disputes over shared trees in a neighborly manner. And uh, so I'm raising this because, and, I, and I'm kind of seeing that there's no point in asking this question because the law that you've just presented us is such a mess right now that it would be, it would be hard to say how far we can go with something like this. Yeah. Do you think that we can take an ordinance path around this or do we need to try to think of a process path, some way of, of supporting and encouraging cooperation rather than doing anything that would look like we yeah. were affecting a taking. So this is where I'm, I'm regretting that I didn't look at what you guys are up to so I can give you better advice. Um, I think what I want to suggest is to go back, at least in the terms of a regulatory taking, go back to that phrase that the courts almost always recite now. The regulatory takings doctrine is designed to ensure that some people are not forced to bear the burdens that everybody else should share, right? So the more that you design an ordinance that's hitting only a small number of people in a pretty big way, the more likely you're going to get hit with a regulatory taking claim that could win. Mm -hmm. So I would think carefully, if you've got a tree preservation ordinance that carves out a lot of the city or a lot of the part of the city and says it doesn't apply to you, that starts to raise bing, ding, ding in my head. The more that you can think about the applicability of this doctrine and really say, this is a regulation broadly applied. Everybody who has trees has to comply with it in one way or another to a reasonable extent. You can't claim if, if you're a property owner that this is hitting me in a way that my, nobody else has to do. It's not fair to hit me. You should just pay me for it. So I don't know exactly. I think right now, because I've had to deal with the city, right? If you do something on a tree line, you've got to get a city permit. But if you're in your own lot, you don't. Is that the way the ordinance is structured? Is that correct? Have you um, thought about expanding the applicability of the ordinance beyond that? Or is that just off the table? Uh, some people have. Yeah. And there is work going on right now. But... I have many, many trees. My neighbors have many trees. They overgrow our property lines. And we have uh, a very cooperative environment, I would say. So we haven't had any problems. But wouldn't a tree uh, fall under the same category as a brick wall or a fence or, you know, a non-living object? Uh, in terms of a requirement to maintain the property? Uh, or? Well, I'm just thinking if it's on one person's property, and but its roots are growing on another person's property and branches are growing, say. And so, for example, and this hasn't happened, my neighbor's tree is, is getting very large and it's shading and threatening the bushes that I have underneath it that need more sun. And oh. so... Yeah. You know, oh. <laughs> I don't mean to add more complexity. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Pile on the complexity. Yeah, that's I a, don't, that's, <laughs> I, I don't I, think the taking. Uh, so that, well, so right. Would apply. It's more strictly neighbor to neighbor. That has nothing to do with the taking doctrine, right? That's a neighbor yeah. dispute. And, and it, it would probably be a private nuisance claim. You're you're using your property in a way that's creating a nuisance. I'm, I think you'd probably have a hard case winning that. Let me come back and try to connect that back to um, Lisa's question. Could you build into your ordinance some way to try and prompt 
that kind of negotiation? I, I honestly don't know. I haven't thought about that. That's a really good question to ask. So I don't think I can give you a really well-reasoned legal answer without giving it some more thought. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess my last question then, would trees be a separate category? I mean, I think that if if a tree is growing onto someone else's property, I wouldn't see that being any different than like a stone wall that's just sort of falling down on someone else's property, you know, or a driveway slab that's sort of sliding. So you, so again, two, two bodies of law here. One are, one are conflicts between neighbors that, that are, is private law, nuisance complaints. You know, if your neighbor doesn't maintain a seat, a wall that caused falls onto your property, you might be able to litigate to get a remedy for that. I don't honestly know if the city's ordinances have protections in place. You could argue that's a nuisance that rises to the level of being regulated at a city level. So I, I think you're supposed to maintain your property in a way that's not dangerous or harmful to others by city right. ordinance. So you can regulate through that approach. The way that trees are different that, that I'll point out is trees have this amazing ability to provide environmental benefits that other things don't provide, like sequestering carb carbon, the shade they provide, the um, the water quality impact. So they are a little bit different. I, I think you can make a credible case in terms of the natural features they provide, kind of like wetlands are their own unique type of habitat that's really worth the extra protection. I think you can put trees in that same category as a natural feature that merits some extra protection. That might then justify the city adopting ordinances that are protections that are a bit more stringent in protecting trees than say it would for um, Pacasandra or you know other kinds of ivy ground cover or something like that. But you want to be able to document that and you know justify why are we picking out trees as something that we're going to take extra steps to protect. And how will they work that out? And then you would want to fold that in to make sure what, whatever you're doing is consistent with the kinds of conflicts that you're talking about. So there, there are moving parts here and interconnections that you need to be careful of and mindful of as you plan out your revisions. Oh, okay. Thank you. And yeah, that's given me some ideas <clears throat> in terms of water flow and wetlands protection. If trees are, are classified in that area rather than just a sliding cement slab, then that makes sense. Yeah, there are natural features that provide some real benefits that, that right. other kinds of features don't necessarily provide. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to call on myself for a second. Um, I really wish that Chris Graham was here because he is our lead on the natural features ordinance and um, would be best equipped to answer some of the, the details that or the questions that you have on, on, on our ordinance, which does not provide much protection on private property. Um, but the, the, one of the, another issue that I think you touched on a little bit, but is tree roots um, crossing property lines and the effect that um, action on a neighbor's property could have on the um, potential life of a tree that's thriving on a border. And, and how to address that kind of thing is, is a big kind of potential problem. Um, and I wanna just mention two other things. Um, the, uh, uh, would be great to have a conversation with you about the potential for future solar blocking of trees um, since we are moving into um, a lot more solar panels on houses and the potential is that I, I'm worried that some people might remove trees 
in preparation for solar panels or complain about a neighbor's tree that might be shading their, their panels over time. And how we would deal with that is yet another complexity, I think. That's, so let me share a personal experience. We have solar panels on our garage. We had to take out a pear tree because it was blocking almost all of what where the solar panel now is. So we lost a tree. But um, this really, I really resonated on the power presentation. I, we're not paying electric in the summer anymore because we're making all of our own. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do this before PT got rid of net metering. So we're not paying for electric in a good bit of the winter too. Um, so there are going to be trade-offs where there are definite environmental benefits from different things. And there may be times and places where you hate to see a tree go, but it's actually maybe the appropriate thing to do which is to say your ordinance probably should be having a balancing mechanism or approach in there to think about the other features that are at play or the other environmental issues that are at play that may actually warrant in some instances losing losing trees. Um, I hate to cut down a tree. I planted a bunch of trees on my property, but sometimes we couldn't have solar if we had left, if we put that left the tree up. Um, about tree roots, I don't have a definitive answer, but I think you know you can regulate you can regulate how people treat the trees on their lawns, right? You um, you can't go out and cut down a tree on a tree lawn. I don't think in Ann Arbor it's prohibited. Yeah. Those are so, public trees. Yeah. So if if a tree root is naturally growing into a neighbor's lawn, I think you could reasonably, and you're going to regulate trees to pr- protect them. You probably can reasonably regulate someone so that they can't cut that you know, do damage enough to the roots of a tree that it would kill it. Mm-hmm. But again, I th- you're going to want to think that through carefully. Um, you know, I can think of parallels. You can't let water run off of your property that would create a nuisance mm-hmm. for a neighbor. Um, you know, the water is a natural thing. It's there. It's moving. Groundwater moves underneath our properties. Just because it happens to be under your property in one moment doesn't mean you can pollute it because you know it's going to be on your neighbors the next minute. So the fact that tree roots are crossing property boundaries, I don't think is insurmountable to the idea that this is a natural living feature that we still can regulate. Mm-hmm. That's the off the cuff mm-hmm. thought in response to that. Right. I do like your idea of, of building in some mechanism that encourages um, discussion between neighbors and, and negotiation or whatever it is, you know, so that there's something to rely on as opposed to the cold knock on the door, you know, with, with somebody who's got a plan or someone waking up and saying, hey, there's a chainsaw next door that I didn't know anything about. Um, that kind of thing, I think, would be really good for us. You have okay. you have a parallel in that with your backyard chicken ordinance, which requires people mm-hmm. to check with neighbors. Mm-hmm. I know that, too, because we have chickens, and I had to go through that as well. <laughs> So, I mean, there there may be some precedent for mm-hmm. uh, setting up mechanisms. You you can maybe cut a tree down, but you got to get if it's on if it's within so many feet of a of a of a lot line, you need to get your neighbor's permission or something. I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. off the cuff. I yeah. think there may be mechanisms you could create to try and encourage that kind of communication. Right. Good. I like that. Uh, I I saw. Um, Commissioner Marzan's hand up. I don't know if you still have a question. Sorry, no, I, I, I had one and then I'm retracting it. Okay, all right. Um, would anyone else like to ask a question? Well, 
Professor Norton, I just want to say thank you very much um, for providing some really deep questions for thought um, and kind of a warning for us in terms of how we move forward and how to do it more carefully. So yeah, um, I'll just say I know Kevin McDonald is a really good land use attorney. So, you know, be sure to consult with him. <laughs> sure. And I'm more than Absolutely. happy to chat with you more, answer questions if you have them. This this is a topic that's I'm quite interested right. in. Right. Super. Um, I'm glad but, to hear that. Yeah. <clears throat> and once again, thanks for Lisa for making this connection. I think You're very welcome. Very All helpful. right. All right. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks. thanks and good night. Um right. Uh so we have finished with our presentations. We do not have any um new business or old business that would require us to um, proceed to a vote on anything. And so I'm gonna move to the reports from committees and commissions. So um, I'm gonna start with who? I'm gonna just go around what I see as my circle. So. Um, and could I ask you to talk about parks? Is there anything that you would like to present to the I don't commission. I don't have anything new to report from parks because our meeting this month uh, actually is next week. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, no new, no new news. All right. All right. Thanks. Um, and um, John Callowart, anything on? Is, would you be um, solid waste? Right. Uh, circular economy. Oops. So uh, lots of things continuing to go on uh, with that project. Uh, we were at the Green Fair uh, earlier this month, top of the park. Uh, we, I think last at a previous meeting, we shared our website. We continue to update that. There is now a map of circular economy businesses on that website. Uh, and we're improving the functionality of that based on additional information and sorting features, uh, helping people you know, find the information. Uh, we've got three kind of pilot projects going on this summer with our students who are working with us. Uh, one is uh, collaborating with Recycle Ann Arbor, one is uh, collaborating with the Ann Arbor Thrift Shop, and the other one is with the Ann Arbor District Library. And with each of those, we're kind of taking a little bit deeper dive in terms of how might we best define circular economy around our metrics of decarbonization, resiliency, and equity, and how to best kind of promote and lift up uh, different efforts across the communities because there's kind of so much going on. And it, I think our kind of belief or kind of mission with this is that that can be very impactful in terms of A20. That, that's kind of the driving force with all of this. Uh, tomorrow, we've got a meeting with about a dozen partners who've been with us for about the past year, different county, city, uh, community organizations, university, to kind of give them an update about where we're at and talk a little bit more about how we might best partner, particularly around creating a circular economy uh, business incubator uh, to help promote the creation of new businesses with that. Spark is a key partner in that. And then later in August, we are planning a community outreach. So for broader uh, kind of community discussion around what we're doing with circular economy. We should have a couple of videos ready soon. And we've got all our fingers and toes crossed for a state grant that we've been waiting on for about a year that will bring in a little bit more money 
uh, hopefully help us really focus on working with uh, BIPOC communities in this area. Lisa, miss anything? That was excellent. And the only thing that I would want to add is just to remind everyone that there was the we, we have under the zero waste working group, we have the circular economy project and we still have a zero waste uh, sector. And uh, there was another zero waste challenge. Um, the I think it was the first full week in June. I was gone for that week, but um, there were 500 people. Um, 500 new people who participated in that challenge, which again was led by Samuel McMullen, who is uh, born and raised in Arbor, uh, lives in New York now, but runs this challenge. Um, and and one of the great things that came out of that was there were a number of circular economy, I would say, call them circular economy, he would call them zero waste, businesses at the fair, and they looked at each other and said, hey, didn't know you were doing this. And so <laughs> that goes back to what John was talking about, our efforts to promote connections, which makes resiliency, which also creates momentum and uh, and and enlarges the circular economy. And so we are, we're just really, um, things are happening so fast that pretty soon it's not going to need us to be pushing it anymore. Or run us over, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's exciting. I'm happy to hear it. Um, okay, let's see. Um, um, Edie, would you like to report on energy? Happy to do so. Uh, and excuse my voice, I have laryngitis. Um, oh, we, in last uh, meeting at Energy Commission, there was a presentation by the Washtenaw, um, on the Washtenaw County Climate Action Plan, um, which provided a great overview of where they are, where they're going with that plan, which is slated to be presented to the board in November. Um, and so that's available on Legislar if you're interested in looking at it. And Missy also gave an overview of the A20 program now that it is turning two and um, walked us through some of the accomplishments, um, what is left to be done, and um, what's coming in the near term. So also available for review. Okay, thanks. Um, this is kind of I, putting, oh, John, go ahead. I was just wondering, Edie, if I could ask a, a question and this is just kind of things I've been hearing. Is there a move to add uh, rep from DTE to the Energy Commission? Is that anything that you can speak to? I've been seeing that on social media. Um, I missed the latter portion of last month's meet, um, and I have not heard that myself, so that's not something I can speak to at this time, but um, I will um, update next month if there are any changes. Thank you. I believe that is the case. That's, that is what I've heard as well, but it didn't get addressed during this most recent council meeting. Um, well, it's not a, I mean, it's not a rep. It's a, it's an Ann Arbor resident who works for, for DTE, but who has, uh, and of course we have had investor owned utility people on the energy commission before, and, um, there's no expectation that they either are like their employer or that they will advocate for their employer, but rather that they bring the perspective uh, it, one of many perspectives that they can bring is that they 
do work for DTE. There's also a rep from, uh, or there is a member of Ann Arbor Public Power on the Energy Commission. So uh, yeah, so yeah. And that didn't come up at council because <laughs> there were so many council members who got confused about the schedule and didn't make the meeting that we couldn't bring it up. Um, Bridget, would you feel comfortable talking about the HE Pollinator Network? And if not, I'll jump in. Sure. I don't know that there's a lot to update since our May meeting, but we have met again to kind of debrief on NOMO May and um, just the pollinator network in general and, you know, maybe define more solidly defining our mission and our path forward and some lessons learned and how we can think about next year's NOMO May. And I, I think just as of yesterday, we've, I have not, but other members have put together a survey that we'll send out to residents that participated to get their feedback so we can use that um, to inform our, our plans going forward. Did I miss anything, yep. Rita? Yep, that's good. Yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I guess I want to just bring up one thing that is, um, we haven't had a meeting of the water quality group, but I just wanted to raise the issue that maybe some of you saw today in the news um, about some new testing um, that identified some um, uh, groundwater plume and, and some 1,4-dioxane um, that has is flowing toward um, the Huron River within a thousand feet even of, of that area. Um, so I'm raising it as an issue of concern for all of us. Um, and we know that there is um, some effort to um, working for the EPA to get involved with cleaning up the Gelman Plume. And um, this is just yet another reason to indicate, to sh that shows that there's urgency, I think. Um, the area in, of concern is in Sio Township. Um, and it is in individual wells at, at low, um, low concentrations, but still something that wasn't known before. Uh, Kathy? Uh, just a, a couple of other things that um, recently happened regarding Gelman. Uh, there was a court hearing. Uh, Judge Connors did not hear the case, however, uh, I think it was significant that in uh, Gelman preparing their brief, they outlined the work that they have been doing or claim to have been doing and are doing now. So that's a positive. There will be oral arguments in the Gelman appeal in two weeks. And I don't know the exact date yet. Um, and also Congresswoman Debbie Dingell um, announced today in an email that she did uh, meet or communicate with at least um, EPA Region 5. So I think that uh, while it is very disturbing that we have found dioxane so close to the Huron River, we are at least, the good news is we're using a more sensitive, I think would be the word, uh, testing method. And so we can detect at smaller levels of dioxane. Um, and we have everyone's atten attention now from the uh, 
township all the way up to the federal government, I would recommend that um, everyone read the MLive article today. If you are a subscriber uh, and you can simply Google Gelman and the article, article will come up. There's a lot of inf technical information about the testing. Um, so anyway, there's, there's at least significant movement and activity, even though we can't say, yes, the EPA is going to be in here cleaning it up anytime soon. Uh, I think a lot of progress has been made in the last few weeks. I agree. Thank you, Kathy. Um, is there a report from council from either council member Griswold or Dish? Um, I just want to report on a couple of ordinances that the Environmental Commission passed and referred to council. One is the U of M workforce housing resolution, which really was a long shot, but uh, momentum is continuing to grow on that. Uh, I talked to Garland Gilcrest, the lieutenant governor, and he said, take a look at Governor Whitmer's May housing plan, which um, would, would have a section in there that is consistent with what I'm doing. I've talked to a number of community leaders and the response I get is usually, can you give me more information or have you talked to so-and-so because I think they'd be very interested in it as well. So it's gonna be a long process to build the community support that we need and, um, So I'll, I'll just stop there. The other one is uh, chapter 40, uh, which is a vegetation ordinance. I did talk to Kevin McDonald after the council meeting and staff is looking at it and they wanna do a thorough review of it. So those two resolutions are continuing to be worked on. And, and I don't know, uh, Looney, if you wanna mention anything about uh, student support for U of M workforce housing, we haven't talked recently. Um, but I, I'm hoping that we can uh, build that support in the coming months. Certainly, once um, once school uh, begins in September, mm -hmm. I anticipate that that'll be a good time to to initiate student engagement. Oh, okay, great. That sounds good. Uh, okay, did I miss anything that anyone would like to report? Okay. If that's the case, then um, Galen, oh. Could we, maybe this isn't the time yet for future agenda items? Is, should I wait uh, on the agenda or? It's, it's coming up. Oh, okay. Right after this one. So let's do Galen and that, then that. Galen, any reports from staff? Uh, nothing at this time, uh, however, uh, last week, we just completed a successful uh, A20 week. So, you know, we wrapped up all the activities. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Kathy, now we're on to items for next agenda. Oh, okay. Um, I'm very interested in stormwater management. And it, I think it would be interesting to get an update from staff on what they are planning to do. And I believe uh, we had a, uh, sorry, I'm, I had an ice cream social today and I've been baking in the sun. I'm not thinking straight. 
uh, we had an update in that small water subcommittee meeting by uh, Larson, who talked about a program where they're going to uh, evaluate stormwater and do a comprehensive study. Is that true or did I hear it somewhere else? Anyway, uh, I don't mean to take up a lot of time, but I, I think that there is a study going on and that uh, stormwater is going to become a, a, a bigger issue with climate change. And so I, I think that uh, it would be good to discuss what the city is doing now. Okay, so you're talking about Jen Larson particularly? Yeah, Jen Larson had mentioned that to me. Okay. All right, uh, we can investigate that. Um, any other items that anyone would particularly like for next meeting or a future meeting? Councilmember Gish. Isn't it Jennifer Lawson? Did I, yes, you're right. Thank you. She, she does was, the work of two people, so I guess she could have two names. She, she had two names. <laughs> I just didn't want you to be looking up someone that you couldn't find. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. Um, back to my list here. Okay, our next scheduled meeting is July 28th, 30th, of the, at the end of the month, the fourth Thursday, as usual. And we are now at a point, <clears throat> excuse me, in our agenda for additional public commentary. And please excuse me while I get to a script that I have to do. Okay, um, this is an opportunity to speak for up to three minutes. Um, members of the public can call one. Uh -oh. Find the number one um, eight eight seven seven eight five three five two four seven and enter meeting ID nine one five eight three four three nine one seven six. Um, the information is also on the meeting agenda and the video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any TV or background noise so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments and be patient if there are any delays. We'll, we'll work with you to get through. Um, and the, the prompt to unmute yourself is star six, I believe. So Galen, do you see anyone who would like to speak with us? There are no callers. Okay, we'll give at least 15 seconds. Wait. Oh, there is one okay. caller. Okay, let's welcome them. Um, I only see the last three of his uh, 
or her number. But uh, caller 053, please go ahead and speak. Uh, We need the star six, right? Is that to unmute? Um, Yep, I'm asking them to unmute. Thank you. Caller, go ahead and speak. Caller 053, please go ahead and speak. It looks like they're still muted according to the screen. Is that anything that you can undo, Galen? I'm asking them to uh, unmute now. I'm hitting the X to unmute button. Thank you. And then John has his hand up as well. I see that. Okay, let's let's continue to try. And um, John, you have a comment? Sure. Question? I was just wondering if there's been any information shared about future meetings. If we're going to continue in Zoom or meet in person, or we? Don't I know. cannot. I I do not know that. I haven't heard any change. Um, I know that City Council is meeting in person. Um, with masks in city council chambers, but I haven't heard that for us yet. Thanks. I'll put that on a note to investigate. The caller hung up. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, caller. Um, I would ask you perhaps write your comment to ec at a2gov.org. And my apologies to getting through. Um, so, I would ask for a motion to adjourn. Commissioner uh, Callaway and Chair Gruber. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your and um, I learned some things. And going. Good night. <laughs>